You up to the challenger? I'm doing it right now. Coming on your show. Face me. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm Rebecca Gifford. I'm Larry's partner in Parkinson's and in life. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. January 17th just happened, and it turns out it's a significant day. The anniversary of the birth of one of the greatest Parkinson's advocates of all time, Muhammad Ali. He would have been 81 years old. Muhammad Ali, a three-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world, died in 2016 at the age of 74. He lived publicly with Parkinson's for more than 30 years. His eldest daughter, Miriam, affectionately known as Maymay, turned 16 in 1984, the year her father was officially diagnosed. She's been a rapper. I'm a champ like the pops dropping hard like an artery, pompadour rhymes to your brain like an artery. Comedian and has been a social worker for more than 15 years. She's worked as a case manager, program director, and regional manager for the mayor's office of gang reduction and youth development in the city of Los Angeles. She was also in season one of A&E's docudrama, 60 Days In, where she spent time in real jail as an undercover inmate in order to make recommendations for jail reform. Get on your knees right there. Just the noises of the booking area, it felt like a zoo. You know you're about to be institutionalized when you go to booking, because that's when you feel like a number. Write them first. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, did I do the right thing here? You hurt my wrist. I signed up for this, but should I have signed up for it? It was a, it was a wonderful experience. It was a, it was a depressing experience. I learned a lot. I spent my whole career trying to prevent kids from going to jail, dealing with parents who've been in and out of jail, and to feel what confinement feels like was um it was it was it was a lesson you know for me and it made me I mean I'm already I already am grateful for my life but I'm even more I don't take anything for granted I mean I couldn't I couldn't imagine being there for over a year let alone 10 and 20 you know so yeah it's called 60 days in and we did make recommendations and they did um apply those recommendations to improve the jail for many years May May has been an ambassador with the Parkinson's Alliance She's a regular at the Central Park Unity Walk, where she spreads messages of hope and encourages people with Parkinson's to be proactive in their own care. And that's where I caught up with her. The night before the Unity Walk, I met May May at a reception held inside the New York City Bar Association building. When your dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's, did he? do you think there was a stigma around that for him? Oh, was- yeah. You know, my father, we there was very little information about Parkinson's back in 1980. I mean, little, young onset Parkinson's wasn't even a thing. They told him he had Parkinson's syndrome and the symptoms would never progress. And these were the Mayo Clinic. These are the top people in neurology, right? And they were completely wrong. So he was hearing there's no progression, but he's going through these stages and these symptoms are changing. And he goes, what the heck is going on? So it was like he was in a room with the light switch off trying to figure his way, find his way through, we just knew nothing about it. When the symptoms became noticeable, he would hear people talking about them. Like, you know, you're, you're, when you can't move quick, everything else is heightened. You can hear everything. So you could hear, he, he could hear people saying, 
Look at him. He's so punch drunk. Is he on drugs? All this crazy stuff. So he went out in public, but he felt like I'm the only one with this. I never forget the moment he met someone with PD. His eyes lit up like, you have it too? He knew no one with PD. There was no support group. There was no unity walk. Parkinson's unity walk. There was none of that. Um, so yeah, it was rough. It was, but again, you know, the, the great thing about him, he's so naturally optimistic and positive and Zen, you know what I mean? That he handled it because he really is a spiritual person that believes God gave me this. I don't know why, but I'm a deal with it. He would always tell people I'm not in pain. I don't have leukemia, cancer. I'm not hurting anywhere. He always saw the glass half full, which is beautiful. But he did have learning curves and was very defiant sometimes with the medicine. And he went through all his same, all those struggles. If he didn't feel like people bothering him or looking at him crazy, he would stay in. A pivotal moment for him was the um, 1996 Olympics when he lit the torch. He could not believe people still loved him with Parkinson's. And I'm sitting at home. I didn't know he was going to light it either. And I'm sitting at home, and he's shaking. I'm like, Dad, don't burn the place down. Don't drop the fire, Dad. You know, because he's shaking. And when, I don't know if this happens with you, when he's nervous, he shakes more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like the shaking starts. So, um... Yeah, so I mean, so he had his ups and downs and he didn't want to take speech therapy because he's like a macho alpha male. So he was like, I don't need anybody to teach me how to talk. You know, his wife tried to get him to do the speech therapy and he didn't want to do it because of that masculinity and being defiant. So he had his struggles with doing the right things, with you know, to help his Parkinson's. He had his struggles. But the key thing was our family, our family and friends and himself, when we all began to educate ourselves on the disease, his quality of life improved. We were able to assist him. And when you're educated, you can you can optimize your functioning physically, emotionally. You can optimize it. And he lived over 30 years and had a full life. And now when people get Parkinson's, they think of maybe the, 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 the foxes or the Muhammad Ali's older, thinking they're going to be like that the next day. no. It's gradual. You can have a life. I know John Ball ran multiple marathons. Matter of fact, there have been some people with Parkinson's that said they were fighting it, the Parkinson's so much, they didn't want Parkinson's to control them. They actually started enjoying their life more and got more hobbies and started doing more because they, they, they really felt like, let me cherish my life that I have and let me do things because Studies show exercise and all those activities can slow the progression. It can it can help balance your walking and in some cases cognition. So you can still live, but you have to educate yourself and, and get out there and find out what are the things you need to do to run run Parkinson's and don't let Parkinson's run you. Right. You know, he was a not only was he a great athlete, he was a great performer. I went back and looked oh, yeah. at, I mean, back, uh, you know, when he was Cassius Clay uh-huh. into Muhammad Ali, I could hear his voice change over time. Oh, yeah. he me, you tell it to your camera, your TV man, your radio man, and you right there in the whole world. Instead of this with me, I'll kiss his feet in the rain. I'm not out of the rain on my knees. I noticed a difference. I went to the second Leon Spinks fight and noticed the difference there. That fight was September 15th, 1978. Ali reclaimed the title of heavyweight champion of the world after going 15 rounds with Spinks. 
Listen to his voice after the fight and see if it sounds a little raspier to you. First time I did it on purpose. I knew I couldn't go 15 at that speed as I did then because I was tired. I was overweight. I didn't train serious. So I got beat. But this time, they said that because he looked like an amateur compared to myself. You think an amateur could last 15 rounds with him? No, they didn't say he was an amateur. <laughs> they said it made him look like an amateur. It's so funny. I was telling my sister, she goes, no, he wasn't talking. I said, yes, he was. I said, you were little. You're nine years younger than me. I remember dad's voice being slurred and whispery at the Sphinx fight. And someone did a study on his voice, and when it starts slurring, it was that fight. Yeah. It was that year. I was like, I told you, because I was close to him. I, 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 I noticed his voice changing, but something was off. You know, he was slower. I think he had Parkinson's then. He had, he had Parkinson's probably, in my opinion, his last, let's see, Leon Spinks, then he fought Larry Holmes. His last three fights, I believe he had Parkinson's. Yeah. Do you think he knew that? He knew something was going on, but again, a lot of boxers get slower as they go. So he thought it was that. He thought, okay, I'm a boxer. I've been boxing a long time. I'm just getting slower. It's from boxing. He didn't know he had Parkinson's. He was tested for the gene. He doesn't have it. I was tested. Didn't have the gene. His brother has Parkinson's. So what did my father and brother share in common? Well... My father's brother's Parkinson's is not as bad, and he got it later on after 60. What they shared were two possible, could be two possible connections. Their father was a painter, and he had a lot of strong lead oil paints in the back of the house that the fumes were all over the house. They grew up in the lead fumes. That's one. The other one is he is Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, at his training camp, they would spray the log cabins with pesticides. So the termites, these were log cabins. So these log cabins were sprayed with pesticides. That's another possibility. Another thing is I think the reason why Rachman, his brother, didn't get it early and not as severe is because Rachman stopped his boxing career. Like, he boxed very briefly. I think the trauma to the head brought it out earlier for my father. I think he probably would have gotten it, maybe in the 60s. But I think, like his brother, but I think the head trauma. So I think, I think it was a combination of the lead exposure, pesticide exposure, head trauma. Mm-hmm. But again, he had a slow progress, progressing Parkinson's too, which was good. And also he was an athlete, which is also yeah. working out his whole life and all that. I think that helped. Six months after I interviewed May May, three neurologists who treated Muhammad Ali's Parkinson's in the final years of his life published an article in the Journal of American Medical Association with his wife Lonnie's permission, clearing up misconceptions about Ali's Parkinson's and his death. The article is titled, Muhammad Ali and Young Onset Idiopathic Parkinson's Disease, The Missing Evidence. We'll link it in the show notes. Dr. Michael S. Oaken, the head of neurology at the University of Florida, was one of those neurologists. You know, obviously a really interesting topic about someone that's really important in American history and in world history. And we, you know, you know, as treating clinicians, we keep things completely confidential. And we only um, respond, um, you know, when the folks that we work with who are our, our patients or our persons with disease or the families um, give consent. And so 
for many years, um, we've been in the background and the, the primary doctor in the family is Malin DeLong at Emory University. And um, several of us have also participated in the, in the care of Muhammad Ali for, for many years. But we follow very carefully the Goldwater Rule, which if you don't know what the Goldwater Rule is, it's a really important um, piece of history. And it started back in the presidential elections with Barry Goldwater, where there was, you know, a lot of doubt cast on him during the, the presidential election. And in fact, the American Psychological Association, they had put out a survey and said, is he fit for office based on all these psychiatrists? And the, the bottom line was at the end of it, people realize that you can't comment on folks unless you have their consent and you've examined them in person and you really know, you know, what the, what the um, circumstances are. And so I think one of the interesting things about the Muhammad Ali case is a lot of people speculated about what they thought was going on. And, you know, they drew a lot of conclusions, you know, based on what they saw in the news and um, and so until the the right permissions um, line up to meet the Goldwater rule, um, we've been silent uh, on the case. And uh, and I think it is important. And I think it was really courageous of um, Lani Ali to sent to allow the information to get out into the um, the the mainstream so that historically for generations, people can know the story and and um, and know the information um, directly from the doctors that cared for him. Well, a lot of people thought that it was the boxing that uh, was causing the Parkinson's. What did you ultimately determine caused his Parkinson's? Well, so we uh, followed him for many years, and uh, Malin DeLong had the longest, I think, uh, follow-up of his case. And um, we know that he is uh, dopamine-responsive, and we know that um, that he has actually a very good response to dopamine. He's got a resting tremor that's actually very large, very coarse, what we say large amplitude. You can really see it on one side of his body more than the other. And he's got Parkinsonian features and all the classical features that you would expect in a regular dopamine responsive Parkinson disease case. And we had evidence from different one of them is called a positron emission tomography or a PET scan, and uh, and serially, meaning multiple scans over time, uh, lining up with with Parkinson. And so, ultimately, he looks like a young onset Parkinson's disease person that responds to dopamine, which is very different than the phenotype of what you would see uh, in someone who might have tremor after a head injury or some features that may overlap with Parkinson. And so the the lesson that we learn here is that, yes, it is true that traumatic brain injury is a risk factor for uh, coming down with Parkinson, but it doesn't mean that everybody who has a traumatic brain injury will get Parkinson disease. And um, that's the type that responds to dopamine. So it is a risk factor having a head injury. But what you see in the news with NFL players and boxers and other things with chronic traumatic encephalopathy syndrome, the clinical syndrome, and then the pathology once you die and turn your brain in, if you allow your brain to be looked at, that's different than um, than what we saw in the Muhammad Ali case. Now, the interesting thing uh, in the case is that um, his uh, religious views 
um, and uh, are, are very important. And when you're taking care of folks, you need to completely respect the views. And, and in the um, Islamic um, culture, there um, there is you know a prohibition against postmortem examination. So we have longitudinal follow up with um, clinical scans, but no postmortem confirmation. So it, it is possible that there could be other features that resulted from the head trauma. But what we see is a young onset, somebody, a young man came down with Parkinson's that was dopamine responsive. It progressed over time and had the typical pattern of what we see. And of course, folks know that it progressed and got worse and he had the symptoms for over 30 years. And at his death, the people probably were surprised that uh, Parkinson's wasn't the cause of death. It was sepsis. And is there a link between sepsis and Parkinson's? So the link is that it's very common. You know, it's very common for folks to get aspiration pneumonia is the other one that, that you hear a lot. And so so aspiration and keeping your coughing and swallowing muscles strong is important. That means you get particles into your lungs, you know, when you're eating and to, they go in the wrong way or secretions um, go in the wrong way. And if you get infections, urinary tract infections and other types of infections, it can be um, more serious in Parkinson's. You might not be able to fight them off uh, as well um, for various reasons, particularly as you progress. And so these are two very common reasons why uh, we see um, folks, um, it contributes to the death. And it's actually very difficult to, um, to, to tell. There's, there's quite a debate among the so-called experts about, you know, whether or not the, you know, that you can say, does somebody actually die of Parkinson's disease or do they die with Parkinson's? And that's, that's a whole, that's a whole interesting debate. So Dr. Oaken is a friend of the podcast and also one of the doctors who co-authored the book Ending Parkinson's. He blogs at parkinsonsecrets.com. Uh, an original PD Avenger. The ori- one of the original <laughs> PD Avengers. Yes, he is a great, great uh, advocate for us and neurologists and he, he's at the forefront of all this stuff. I always find it surprising when we hear folks from both inside and outside the medical community say that Parkinson's isn't fatal. Yet nearly everyone we know who's died with Parkinson's has died from a complication, a symptom, a condition, or a risk factor that wouldn't have existed did they not have Parkinson's? Well, and it's interesting because every country in the world keeps statistics on causes of death, and all of them have a number for Parkinson's disease deaths, including the United States, where I think in, in the year 2020, uh, it was the 17th leading cause of death. So why is it still asserted then that Parkinson's is not a fatal disease simply because it doesn't kill you quickly? talk to Dr. Oaken about this a little bit um, and we, maybe we'll revisit with him at a longer because he said it's a really interesting debate uh, amongst neurologists whether you die with it or you can die from it but dying with complications from Parkinson's to me is dying from Parkinson's. Right isn't that the same terminology they use they used to use and maybe still do regarding HIV it's like complications from HIV so People with HIV die from, you, you know, pneumonia, pneumonia or something that was contracted because their immune system is weak. Well, and, and it takes the urgency out of our cause. If people think it's not going to kill you, then why do we need to spend research dollars on it? Why do we need to spend time on it? Why do we need to advocate for it? Because it's, it's just a chronic disease. You'll be all right. Right. <laughs> no! <laughs> 
When I was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's, I, I knew of Ali and Michael J. Fox's diagnosis, but didn't realize Parkinson's wasn't an old man's disease, which sounds crazy because the only two people I was aware of of having PD was uh, Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time, who was diagnosed in his 40s, and Michael J. Fox, who was 27 when he was diagnosed. I wonder why it didn't strike me sooner. I know that the two most famous people with Parkinson's the names most people say when you tell them that you have Parkinson's <laughs> were both diagnosed as early onset. And, but most of us are surprised when we meet or hear about young people with Parkinson's, despite that fact. So I wonder if the celebrity factor is kind of creating that disconnect. Because if you think about it, both Michael J. Fox and Muhammad Ali are iconic in their own ways, household names. And not always seen as accessible or regular people, even though, of course, they are. So maybe it's hard to make that unconscious leap in our brains, the connection to how it may affect the people in our own lives. I, I asked Maymay about it and about the lack of awareness of the YOPD community. Well, I mean, you, it, you have to make it stick. You have to tell people. You know, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant educational campaign. You have to say, you know, there's something called young onset Parkinson's. A lot of, I don't know what the percentage is, but people do get it younger. Muhammad Ali got it when he was still boxing. Michael J. You just got to remind people. You know, people are what they intake. People are not intaking information on Parkinson's on a daily basis. They just see news clips and then they see the last ones they've seen. They see the last clips of Muhammad Ali. They, the last clips they saw were Michael J. Fox older, Muhammad Ali older. That's the last imprint, right? Yeah. So you just have to and you can't really worry about them not knowing. You just you're you're just a walking billboard for it and say, hey, you know, and they'll, then they'll go, oh, and guess what? They'll be in a conversation. Hey, I met this guy who were talking about Muhammad Ali and then people got a young and they'll repeat that information. So you just have to know that you're just this, 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 this right here, what we're doing. You're, you're educating folks all the time because they may get it or they may have a wife that gets it. And so this education can go on and on and on. And they'll go, oh, you know, I met a guy and yeah, you, you got to get a, like a movement disorder specialist instead of a regular neurologist. Cause I saw on TV and I saw this interview. So just know what you're doing is good work and is needed and it's going to help somebody somewhere. Mamie spent a lot of time with her dad during his Parkinson's years, and one of his symptoms was punding. Punding is a, I don't know if I'm, I'm not a doctor, it's a repetitive, almost obsessive, like obsessive compulsive, um, um, repetitive action. And it comes from the side effects of the medication, some of the best medication. And my father's punding was, he had a couple, he would look through magazines and tear out the pretty pictures in magazines. And he couldn't stop doing it. Well, this became a problem when we went to a very high-end party at a mansion. Matter of fact, it was his house he used to live in, a big mansion in L.A. he used to live in. And there was an, an attorney who bought the house. And there was a, there was a uh, party at that house. So when he got back to the house, he, it was, the house was very familiar for him because he lived in the house for 10 years, years ago, right? So he saw these very expensive photo books, a beautiful, like expensive books. And he started looking through them and wanted to tear the pages. And these are someone else's books in someone else's house. But he, because of the obsessive compulsive nature of punding, he was, he'd get mad if you take the book from him. He goes into the zone. 
So we have to understand what that is. And so we're like taking the books and, you know, it's like you can't do this. It's not your house. You know, you, you can't. These are someone else's books. But on the flip side, what we would do, we would use it as activity. So we would bring, we would visit him in his hotel room. We would bring him magazines from the magazine store or whatever of beautiful pictures and actually tear out pretty pictures with him as an activity. Instead of trying to stop him from doing something he really wanted to do, it's so it was safe to do it in, in the confines of his own hotel room or his own home. So we'll bring magazines and stuff to him. And so, so understanding, and then my friends, if they came to visit me at my dad's hotel room and he's, he's ripping out pieces of paper, sometimes he would put the paper on the the floor to just look at them. And I would explain to my friends, this is what this is. This is punding. If you see my dad ripping out magazines and looking at pictures, it's an obsessive compulsive. I would explain what it was and I go, Oh, no problem. So everybody in that universe of someone with Parkinson's is good to educate them on what they're seeing. Or even if they come over, take them off to the side. Hey, my uncle has Parkinson's. He does this. Don't worry about it. Just whatever. You know? Yeah. That's really interesting. Who knew, honey, that there's a name for when you're in your Lego bubble? I know. Unbelievable, right? Like it's... I could, I, and it's not just I'm building Lego. It's I'm organizing and I'm separating and I'm, you know, color coding and I'm putting the shapes. To, like, I'm, it's, 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 there's no end to it. It, it. It's just organizing them while I'm listening to a podcast or something. And it's, I could do it for six hours. What does it offer you? For, for like, if I'm, especially if I'm in pain or if I'm feeling like I'm unable to focus on something, it gives me something to do that is for me it's comfort it's sort of a uh, it's almost like a meditation well and last night you were doing it and saying you explained to me that you were doing it because you were feeling some pain in your feet your neuropathy yeah. had had kicked in big time and so this was a way to distract you and allow the time to pass just like when i was used to be in my bubble where i would just stare at the space be un, not present in the room uh, but I, you end up going to sort of like into a Lego zone and, you know, it's, it, I, it's, I can't really explain it other than, um, I'm a punder and I didn't know it. <laughs> Is that the official term punder? We just made it up yeah. or you did. <laughs> I've heard you say that he had some difficulty with his uh, medication regime. And I've read some stories, yeah, and I yeah. want to hear how he was hiding yeah. his medicine. Yeah, you know, my father, you know, you don't always like the way you feel on medicine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sometimes there was one medication where he, what, he ate a lot and he gained weight. And um, there was a time where he was on the medication. For some reason, he didn't want to take it. I don't know why. Maybe he didn't feel good or something. He just didn't want to take this medicine. And then a, a few weeks later, it was recalled. So then it was like, oh, he didn't want to take anything. You know, he didn't trust anything. And so he goes, I told you, I told you I shouldn't take it. See, you know, and then it was like, oh, boy, now he thinks he knows what to take and what not to take. So, yeah, he would kind of like, you know, he just didn't trust the medicine all the time. And it could have been what he made. It could have been how he felt, you know, with it. I know some people that have mental illnesses, they don't like their medicine because it makes them feel lethargic. Right. And not themselves. What would he do with them? Oh, man, he would just put him in his desk drawer or put him in a plant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I mean, for the most part, he did take it. But then Lonnie, his wife, and you know, she she would grind the medicine up and put it in applesauce. 
So it's like, oh, you can't get rid of this. And, you know, you know, so, you know, it, it, we had to, she had to work things out for him. But he, he, for the most part, he took his medication. And, and I'll tell you what made him take it. Um, he still had a lot of events and traveled and he, you know, my father's, you know, he has his vanity. He wants to look good. You know, he always said he was pretty when he was boxing and everything. I'm pretty. I'm the greatest. I'm young. I'm handsome. I'm fat. I'm pretty and can't possibly be beat. So he goes, Muhammad, you know, if you take your medicine at the right time, you're going to look really good when you get to the event. Then he started taking it. <laughs> when did you know when you were growing up that he, that your dad was Muhammad Ali? Like the Muhammad Ali. So I knew, see, you have to understand, I was born in 68 when he was in exile from boxing. Okay. So I was a baby. So by the time I could walk and talk, he was Muhammad Ali. So I have never not known him to be that. So, and also, once a child has cognition, they know what, what a person is. People were always surrounding us and flocking us in public. So I knew he was an important person to people. I knew that almost right away because I'm there. I was like daddy's little girl and I'm with him all the time. So I'm seeing people and I'm hearing people my whole life. I love you. I mean, kids know what that means. You helped me. You're my hero. These are basic words kids know. So I knew who, what he meant to people from the, from the very beginning. What do you think is your dad's legacy as it pertains to Parkinson's? Love yourself regardless of the phase of life you're in. Take care of yourself despite what you're dealing with. And don't worry about what people think because, again, he was the kind of person up until Parkinson's that didn't care about what people thought. He was a celebrity that put a face on it. But I, I, w- I would say he would want to give every single person credit. And he, he would say that, you know, the doctors, the, the brilliance of the doctors who did the research. And I mean, he would really acknowledge the importance of that, actually finding a cure. But yeah, having celebrities with a disease does help in campaigning for funding research. Yes, it does help. But I, it, it takes everybody. It takes the whole Parkinson's universe. I love it when you talk like him. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, oh, imitate him. Oh, yeah. Uh, did I imitate him? Yeah. <laughs> I did. I just did it. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, we, he, now that made him laugh when I would imitate him. Like, what would you say to him? I would say, I was like, I'm the greatest. I'm bad. I'm pretty. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you look like me. You get your, you, you, you take after me. You rhyming like me, telling jokes like me. I'm like, okay, Dad, you take all the credit for everything. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> Maymay is funny, charming, engaging, lights up a room much like her dad did. I, I don't do things because my dad did them. He may have had an influence on me. Like, you know, I know he, when he helped people, I love that feeling of him helping people. And that may have been, had an impact on me being a social worker. But, but none of my sisters are social workers. Um, I think I'm naturally like him in many ways. I, I look the most like him out of most of my siblings. And I think I just have a natural, innate thing that I, I think we're similar just in a lot of ways. Like I, I, I wrote, yeah, I, was, I, I did rap music. And I got out of entertainment because I'm a Muslim and I knew there were so many things I wouldn't do as a Muslim woman. I got out. But I loved writing rhymes. I just think that's in my DNA. I wrote my album. 
I, I, you know, usually I write a poem for the Unity Walk. They got me a T-shirt called the Unity Walk Poet, and I haven't written one for three years, and I wrote one yesterday and today. I just started yesterday, and I wrote a short poem. And so that's kind of, I think, my DNA genetics. He wrote poetry, and I wrote poetry. So, but I, I do things because I like doing it. I don't say, my dad did this, now I'm going to do it. Right. I, I just think I just, I'm like him biologically. You know, we have similarities biologically. Can you give us a sneak peek of the poem? This year, I just want to address what we've been going through since 2020. Mm. And it's, it's a short poem, but you have to acknowledge the world is different. Yeah. This poem is called, Bear With Me, I Haven't Practiced Too Much, We're Here. Here it is. We're here. After two years of worldwide shock, 2020, the globe seemed to stop. Thoughts and prayers for those who have lost loved ones, family and friends, Many are thankful for their breaths they take, but still committed to what remains at stake, ending Parkinson's disease and helping everyone impacted by PD. The Unity Walk, finally in person, but also virtually, because our cause must continue. So what's on the 28th Unity Walk's menu? The heartbeat of it all is always the teams raising, mo raising money to manifest dreams of a cure, the medical professionals connecting with people to address what they endure. PD organizations proudly lined up, reaching out and offering support. And the 1.4 mile walk in the park, our tailor-made sport. What a blessing to reconnect with old friends and also make some new ones. What a lesson to not take things for granted and dance to the beat of life's drums. Yes, it can be daunting to think about all of the human suffering around us, but more than ever, caring for each other is ultimately what grounds us. So let's be grateful for the time we share as a dedicated Parkinson's community and enjoy the day in Central Park. We're here again together in unity. Our thanks to Maymay Ali, Dr. Michael Oaken, and you for listening. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast podcast production. Story producer is Dila Velazquez and sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, where people with Parkinson's are at the center of everything they do. Parkinson Canada funds critical research, provides information and support, increases awareness and advocates for improved healthcare outcomes for people with Parkinson's across Canada. Learn more at parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023, coming up quick, July 4th through 7th, 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to WPC2023.org right now. The abstract submission deadline has been extended to Sunday, January 22nd at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners and friends united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. We need you. Join now at pdavengers.com. Spotlight YOPD, one of the only organizations in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. Spotlightyopd.org. And we'd really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with somebody. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.